We're in Acts chapter 9 in our study through the book of Acts uh, this morning. Uh, We're going to be reading a text beginning with verse 32 through the end of that chapter. What this text does is gives us a bit of a window into the reality that Jesus draws us to himself in order to enlist us into his plans and into his purposes. Now that concept isn't something that all of us as Christians start out realizing necessarily. It's not uncommon for us to come into the kingdom, to become a Christian with the sense of, okay, something like this. Would you like to come to Jesus and invite him into your heart because he loves you? He loves you extremely so much that he would die for you. And he did, in fact, die in order for your sins to be forgiven. He was your substitute. So because of that and receiving that through faith, you can have peace with God. In other words, your inner life can be transformed in a moment of receiving this grace and you will have peace and be invited in to Christ's kingdom. And he promises to be with you always, to care for you in your needs, and promises you an eternity with him in glory. Would you like to accept Jesus into your life? Okay, why not? Uh, But if I do, does that mean I have to go to church? Every, every Sunday? What, 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 what does that mean? We often start off in our Christian lives, in a sense, thinking it's all about us. It kind of seems that way. All that Jesus did, God's love, everything, it is directed at you, at me. And so when we hear that and we realize that, well, how could you say no to such an offer? What happens along the way at some point, for some sooner, for some of us later, we begin to realize that God has done something larger than merely saving us and blessing us. And we begin to realize that what in fact he has done is that he has enlisted us into what he is already doing. Like he's got this grand plan and purposes to save people from every people, and we are being brought into that plan at some point along the way. I could phrase it something like this. We might begin our Christian life with us being at the center. It seems like it, understandably so. But at some point along the way, we begin to realize We ourselves are not necessarily at the center of it. Jesus himself is at the center. And so we begin to transition and realize that this is a God-centered event, that this is a Christ-centered event in my life, and that what he's doing in your life and what he's doing with us corporately together, even in just this one local church, is a Christ-centered mission. If you're coming in thinking it's all about me, and that's wonderful, 
And then I stand up and I tell you, it's really not all about you. You might think, that's not so wonderful. But herein is the truth of what is actually taking place. Your greatest joy, my greatest joy, our greatest happiness comes in this realization that we have been brought into his plan. And we get to participate in that. So somehow we come around to realizing you really don't want it to be all about you. You want all of you to be all about him. That, in the end, will lead to our greatest joy and his ultimate glory. You have to trust me on this. It's for your greatest happiness to live a Christ-centered life and for us to be a Christ-centered church. But understandably, that transition can be a bit of a hurdle. Our text helps us with that transition. Our text is about Peter's Christ-centered approach to building the church. The church is growing. The church is expanding. And Peter is drawn to the forefront here. And while Peter, in the past, has had a bit of a reputation of being a little bit all too self-focused, comparing himself to others, putting himself above others, putting himself at center stage, shining the spotlight on himself. Now we see Peter in Acts chapter 9, living out, walking out a Christ-centered building of the church. Here we have Peter keeping Jesus in the right place. Let's read together our section, Acts chapter 9, beginning in 32 through verse 43. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, 
and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. We're going to look at this section of text here. The fact that Peter goes, first point, Peter goes because Jesus sent him. Then Peter does what Jesus did. And together, those two things produced the best result. People came to know the Lord. First point, Peter goes. It's just the first verse. Peter went out. The narrative here shifts. If you've been coming regularly and tracking as we're studying the way, our way through the book of Acts, the narrative now shifts from Saul back to Peter. From the day of Pentecost, Peter was the main character leading the church in Jerusalem. The spotlight was, in a sense, on him. Then, when Stephen was executed, we were introduced to this man named Saul, who became a first great persecutor of the Christians. But then we found out later, Jesus saved him, and he becomes a Christian himself. Now Luke reverts the attention back to Peter. We're actually at the beginning of a very important section in the book of Acts where the gospel is about to expand into what the scriptures call the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. This is like phase three of the table of contents from Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And so the progression is happening and we are right on the cusp of phase three. And it is significant. We, we in our modern time, cannot fully appreciate the, the gap, the jump, the transition to go from a Jewish Christian church into the Gentile world. We're right at the beginning of that. It's all preparatory for that. And both Peter and Paul have very significant roles in that major transition. And so now Luke takes us back to Peter. And Peter ventures out. I don't know if you remember that little detail. When Stephen was executed and the persecution started in Jerusalem, there was a great persecution and people fled. The Christians fled. But I don't know if you remember the little comment, but the apostles remained in Jerusalem. So for some reason, they thought it best. We better stick around here and make sure that the church, home-based church in Jerusalem, stays healthy, stays intact. While all the Christians were literally fleeing for their lives and spreading out into the neighboring towns and areas. This was the involuntary evangelism that was taking place. They were running for their lives, but they were bringing the gospel to other parts of the world. When Saul becomes a Christian, it says the church had peace. In other words, the persecution had subsided. The climate has changed. So now we got Peter venturing out. It's time to go. Jesus told the apostles, I want you to go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. While they for a time stayed in Jerusalem, now he begins to venture out because that's precisely what Jesus told them to do. 
And the implication in the text, what seems to be clear from the text, is it was going out to check on the Christians that have just fled for their lives. How are the churches doing? How are the Christians doing? And so Peter, being an apostle, takes it upon himself and says, it's time for me to go and check on the other Christians, to encourage them in their faith, to see how they're doing, to pray for them, to teach them, to instruct them. God has been rearranging the furniture in the church. And if you've been around here for a while, uh, those are familiar words to you. It's a little bit painful, isn't it? All the times that God rearranges the furniture and we hear, oh, yet again, someone is relocating and, and someone is moving and making the move. And there is something, I think, ingrained in our soul, our the way we're wired from the Lord for home and for stability and family and consistency, it's always a little bit painful when there's changes. By God's grace, new people keep being added, but how much you just want to stop people from leaving. God is always rearranging the furniture. God is always calling us to be, in a sense, on the go. I hesitate to say that because every time I say that, somebody's got something going on in their mind, and this just is the word of the Lord telling them to go ahead and make the move. That's not what I'm doing. Your going could be staying too, okay? It, it, really, going is across the street. Going is across the hallway. Going is to the next neighborhood or to the next town. But granted, it could be going to another location. Here's the point to keep in mind. We can't stop and we don't want to stop God from rearranging the furniture because he's expanding the gospel constantly. And we need to be okay with that because when we're in glory together, then we can experience the kind of stability that we crave and that we want. For now, we're on mission. But here's the point that I would like to make. Peter went because Jesus told him to go. Peter's going was a Christ-centered going. He didn't have an inkling to live somewhere else where the housing prices were better or the job opportunities were better necessarily. He was going because Jesus was sending him. And this is something, a point of application for us all. Is your going a Christ-centered going? Friends, do you know that you are here this morning because Christ sent you here? You say, no, 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 no. I, I, I came here to go to school. I came here because of a job transfer. I was just born and raised here, whatever. You know, we all have the, the secondary reason why you're here in this room this morning. But did you know? revealing to you a spiritual reality, Jesus sent you here. Whether you realize it or not, Jesus decided for you to be here at this time in this place. At some point, that might change. Ultimately, it will change for all of us at some point. But today, right now, can you acknowledge, recognize, and appreciate the fact that Jesus is the one orchestrating his church. And you are here because he wants you here today.
You might have walked in off the street. You might be a visitor, a guest today, and, and I had no idea. And it's like, uh, yes, even you. You are here because Jesus wants you here now, today. And if you end up going somewhere else and moving somewhere else, can I encourage you to think in terms of, is this a Christ-centered relocation? Is there something going on here where it is Christ-centered about the change, about the move, about the going? Peter goes. Peter went because Jesus told him to go. And when he went, Peter did what Jesus did. Okay, second point. Jesus, Peter did what Jesus did. He performs two miracles. And we read these two miracles. And if you've been around your Bible a while, they sounded a bit familiar, didn't they? First, it's important to know that Peter was the one who did these miracles. In 2 Corinthians, Paul, when he was writing to defend his own apostleship to the church in Corinth, he reminds them about the miracles that were done through him in their midst, and he wrote to them, For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. We're being informed here that one of the confirmations and signs of being one of Jesus' apostles is the ability to perform miracles now here we certainly do not believe that supernatural events and miracles are limited to the apostles but we do know and we have to affirm there is something unique about those 12 and one of the criteria that verified that those 12 are the 12 that jesus told are that jesus worked miracles through them and that's what we're seeing here. That's important for us to know. You might not realize how important it is, but what that does at this point in church history is it affirms apostolic teaching. Maybe you're a Christian, you don't think too much about turning to the epistles and realizing that you are reading apostolic teaching. And you might not second guess that. I hope you don't. But that's the point of what's taking place here as Peter's apostleship is getting established. Now he has teaching authority from Jesus to the churches. And we read the letters in the epistles and we need to understand that those letters and epistles come with the same weight and the same authority of the word of God. That's part of that apostleship. And so that informs us and helps us how we read our Bibles. Now, Peter first healed a paralyzed man named Aeneas, similar to Jesus healing a paralytic in Mark chapter 2. If you're familiar at all with that story, that was the one where the friends were taking this paralytic. The crowd was so pressed in, they couldn't find a way. They opened up the roof of the house and lowered the man down in front of Jesus, and Jesus healed him. Now, this encounter in Acts chapter 9 with Peter is quite Brief, but Peter makes a very important declaration. Aeneas, Jesus heals you, not I heal you. Peter, the apostle, heals you. No, Jesus heals you. 
There's always a propensity, a danger. If you have the gift of healing, it's noticeable. And it's easy for you to be the center of attention. If supernatural power is working through you, you have to be on your guard to deflect and redirect attention from yourself and recognize quickly, immediately, and constantly that it is Jesus that is doing the work. That's where the power is. And so Peter performs this miracle, but he says, it is not me, it is Jesus. We will see later in the book of Acts when the apostle Paul is doing some supernatural work and the crowds start to look to him like he's a god. And he panics. This is a terrible misunderstanding. No, stop it. Don't think like that. I am not a god here. I'm not the one. You don't realize it's another that's doing this. And Peter's quick from the outset. It is Jesus that is healing you. And he says, rise and make your bed. We're going to see this is the beginning of what appears like Peter pulling out his notebook from his times with Jesus and saying, now what did Jesus say? How did he handle this? How did Jesus handle a paralytic? He said, rise and take up your bed. Rise and make your bed. Okay, well, here I am. Okay, rise and make your bed. Just do it just, just like Jesus did it. Because he learned from Jesus, and now he's doing what Jesus did. He said it like Jesus said. Then he heals Tabitha, also known as Dorcas. Dorcas, wonderful woman, well known for her good deeds done for so many people. You would never realize this in the English translation of the New Testament, but this is the only time in the scriptures where the feminine use of disciple is written. And Luke, the writer, is drawing attention to something, calling her a disciple, using the feminine term for disciple, which is unusual. Usually it's just kind of all lumped together, disciples, male and female together. But here, something she is being put forward as some kind of example, and it is her good deeds. And now you get, a, you get a picture of what life is like when you are a disciple. Your life is changed. Your status is changed with God. You're standing right before God. You have eternity and hope to be with him forever. But your life here and now is changed. And our lives have been created and in Christ recreated for good works. Did you shudder a little bit in your theological soul there? It should not. We talk so much about not being saved by good works, and we must keep emphasizing that you do not earn any merit with God by being the wonderful good person that you are. You are saved by grace. But when we are saved by grace, the orientation of our lives is transformed. And now we are out seeking the needs of others. How can we bless others, help others, serve others? 
And this was this woman's reputation. We get, we get a, a, a poster child of what it means to be a disciple. Because when she got sick and died, the room is filled with people weeping and saying, look, she, she made this for me. Look, she made these socks. She put this together. She made this coat for me. Look at all the things. This is what we remember about her. She was always serving others. She was giving herself away. She wasn't thinking about herself. She was thinking about other people's needs, always giving to the poor, always providing for others. I have this beautiful picture of what it means to be a disciple. Peter shows up. Okay, he gets out his notebook. What did Jesus do when there was a little dead girl, Jairus' daughter? He cleared the room. Okay, everybody go. This is how Jesus does it, okay? He cleared the room. He kneels down and he prays. You know, this reminds me of my honeymoon. When we were riding in our car in northern Michigan, and it was pouring rain, cats and dogs, and the car wouldn't start. It was at this moment I was getting a clue. This trip is a bust. This is not going well. But newly married husband, I said, do not fear, my love. I will venture out into the pouring rain, and I will open the hood of this car, and I shall fix this vehicle. So I opened up the hood, that 1960-something Volkswagen bug, and I got down on my knees and I prayed. <laughs> because I did not have a clue how to fix that little car. And so I prayed, and I want you to know, we are here today. We, we made it out of northern Michigan at some point and made it home. We did not die there. We do not still live there in the middle of the woods. She didn't know that. And she couldn't see me with the hood up. All I needed was a quiet place to pray. And pray I did. So Peter's there. He clears the room. He kneels down and he prays. And then he says, Tabitha, arise. I don't know if you remember the account of Jesus' words. Talitha, arise. It is literally in the Greek. It is one letter, letter difference between the two statements. What do these two miracles teach us? What is this text trying to impart to us? First, Jesus is establishing Peter as his agent, his apostle. That is one of the things that is taking place at the top of the list here. The signs of the apostle are taking place, and he, Jesus, is establishing Peter in that role, and everybody is seeing it. The results of that grant him authority to teach as an apostle, and you and I benefit from that to this day. But at that time, the church needed to know that so that they could receive from him. He was an emissary from the Savior. 
He was a continuation of the Savior's work. He was the agent that would carry on what Jesus began. It's also good for us to know that the ministry of Jesus continued. Okay? Being a Christian doesn't mean, oh, we had this wonderful Savior that did wonderful things at some point in history, but when he died and he rose again and ascended to the heaven, that all that good stuff is done. It left with him when he ascended. Now, there are certain things that Jesus did that do not need to be duplicated, should not be attempted to be duplicated. He accomplished the will of the Father by offering himself in our place. He did what only he could do in saving us. But with his work accomplished, his obedience to the Father, to the point of death, and God raising him from the dead, and him returning to the Father in glory, his work on that front was done. But the work of his ministry continued. And that's what we need to see was taking place here. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We need to understand, not assume, that the ministry of Jesus was meant to continue on after Jesus departed from the earth. And the ministry of Jesus continues to this day through his church, through his people, through you, through me. We can and we should recognize the uniqueness of the apostles. That's good and right. The scriptures teach that. The emphasis on the 12, they had a unique role in church history and in the life of the church. But there's no biblical evidence that makes miracles, signs, and wonders restricted to those individuals. And there's clear encouragement through the gifts of the Holy Spirit given to all believers at the will of the Spirit that supernatural power is included. This is something that we embrace as a church. We are not trying to duplicate apostolic authority. We're not trying to duplicate being an apostle. We recognize the uniqueness of those 12 men that God has positioned in the history of the church. Nevertheless, there's no biblical basis to say that's the end of any supernatural workings of the Spirit. Much is encouraged in the life of the church. God is still at work. Our text highlights the generosity and practical good deeds done for those in need. Therein is a work of the Spirit. That's what was happening in the room. There was an encounter, a testimony of God's Spirit because this woman gave her life in good deeds to others. And now, as she was lying dead for a time, Everyone was recognizing the grace of God in her life. And then she's resuscitated and brought back to life. This also teaches us that Jesus still cares about suffering. He still cares 
about suffering. Jesus is not unaware of suffering. Now, every one of us, when we suffer, one of the hard thoughts about God, one of the inclinations of our old heart is to say, God doesn't care about my suffering. This text should help us realize and affirm that he very much does still care about your suffering, your hardship, the troubles in your life. We know that God allows much suffering. That is a hard reality of the world that we live in. But we also know that he is wise and sovereign and so able to use suffering for our good and for his glory. Therefore, we have hope even in our suffering. Nevertheless, the truth remains. He cares. He's not for your suffering. He's for your good. And these miracles are, in a sense, just a deposit, a foretaste, if you, of, if you will, of what he promises us in the future. When we finish our time in this era, on this earth, we will be with him in a place where there is no more suffering, where it has all been made right. Not a piecemeal foretaste, not a deposit here and there, but the whole thing, all things will be made right. All injustices, all oppression, all suffering, all sickness, all grieving, all sorrow will be no more. And so now, when our happiness is delayed and interrupted with suffering, we can not only trust and have confidence that the Lord knows, that he cares, but he's also wise enough to use and strengthen and sustain us. But we also go through that with the hope that it is only for a time. There will come a day. I hope it's for you this afternoon. I hope it's tomorrow. I hope it's next week. But I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is that one day, when it's all said and done, and he returns and he restores all things, and takes his full place of ultimately reigning over, and every principality and person is humbly bowed before him, all things will be made right. And the suffering will then be absolutely over. Peter went because Jesus sent, and Peter did what he did because that's what Jesus did. Could we assess our lives as Christians? Do I live my life as a continuation of what Jesus did? Are there components, aspects of my life that are clearly a continuation of what I know Jesus to have done? Am I about the business of what he was about doing? Is that a part of my life? Is it even in my thinking? As I think about my life and what I give myself to, what I spend my money on and what I spend my time on, is it even in my purview to be thinking, I'm his now and I should be about his business. I should be thinking in terms of what his ministry was and realizing that now I have been drafted in 
to his family, his army, if you will, to participate and engage in his purposes, his ministry. Therefore, I should assess my life and ask that question. Are there components in my life of me doing what Jesus did? Is my new life in Christ a life of good works for the good of others? When I die, and I will die, some of you might still be alive. When I die, I no doubt most of you will. And there might be a moment where I'm the body lying up front. I wonder what's going to be said. I know what I hope will be said, but what I want to be said is not something I can just tell you. Would you please say this at, at my funeral? Okay, so when I die, could I, just, could I write a couple of scripts for you and hand them out and say, well, I'd really like it if you would share this about me uh, at my funeral. No, what's going to come out is about what took place. What I did, for good or bad. Maybe nobody will show up. Maybe empty room, quiet room, I don't, I don't know. But can I assess my life today? Think, am I investing myself today so that at least there would be just cause for somebody to show up and say, he did this. Look, look. I can't make clothes for you. <laughs> Third point. These two things work together for the best result. At the conclusion of each miracle, we get a statement that Luke included. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. When Jesus performed miracles, he did them to lead people towards acknowledging and trusting him. He did those good works. He did those miraculous things in order to instill and provoke and make way for faith. The result was supposed to be so that you believe. There was a time when he did a miracle. He fed a multitude with bread. And it gained him quite a following. But he realized shortly thereafter, you're following me because you ate your fill of the bread. You're not following me in order to believe in me. And things ended at that point. There's another point where it says, because of their lack of faith, he did no miracles there. Now you realize he's not talking about faith in miracles. Oh, you're just not, there's a believer and there's an unbeliever in the room the power's not working. I can't do a miracle because somebody's doubting. We've got to make sure everybody, nobody's doubting. And no, that's not at all what he was saying. You want a miracle. You want to see something supernatural, but you don't want me. And those miracles are designed to draw attention to me and stir in your heart to see something of the power and the magnificence and the kindness 
and the goodness so that you will trust in me. And if you're not interested in trusting me, then I do no miracles here. And he moves on to another town. It is all designed towards this great and wonderful end. This is the objective, to lead people to a place of faith, to trust in Jesus. As the church goes, as the church prays, as the church speaks, heals, serves, gives, etc., all with the hope and the intent that people will see, acknowledge, and believe this is who Jesus is. He's worthy of your trust and your allegiance and your devotion. This is, this is the best thing we can do for the greatest happiness of another person is lead them to Jesus. We should work to serve other people. We should give ourselves to alleviate suffering in other people's lives. But in this life, we will never totally eliminate hardship and suffering. But one thing we can do is lead people to know. We can bear witness of who Jesus is and persuade and appeal and even plead, come and place your trust in him because that is your ultimate happiness that's your eternal food your forever provision and so this is why we open up our homes this is why we give this is why we pray. This is why we serve one another. This is why we reach out to someone in need. This is why we raise our children in the Lord. This is why we honor marriage and build healthy marriages. This is why we worship together. In every way, we seek to align our lives with Jesus and apostolic teaching and is all meant to work together with one purpose and one end in mind, to be his witness and draw people to know, see, acknowledge, and trust in Jesus. That's what happened in Acts chapter 9. Peter went. Peter did what Jesus did. People saw it and they believed. It happened that way with Jesus. It happened that way with the apostles. It's happening and will continue to happen with us as well. We will go, we'll go across the street, we'll go down the hall. We'll go this way and we'll go that way. And in all our going, we will go with Jesus in mind, realizing, acknowledging he is sending us. And so we go, and when we go, we go to do what Jesus did. What is the need here? How can I pray for you? What is the lack? What is, what is missing? How can I provide? How can I bless? How can I help? How can I serve? Not how can I take. Not what can you do for me. What can I do for you? And as we go, as we serve, as we give, as we meet the needs of others, people will see and people will believe. This is our hope. So, Worship team, come on up. We're near the end. Let's ask ourselves some questions. 
if in fact we understand our lives as Christians and our life together as a local congregation, that we exist to be agents of Jesus for Jesus. Do we acknowledge that? Do you think about that? Do you realize that you just, I kind of like this church, wandered in, I'm here, I come, it's okay for me. No, do, do you realize what's really going on here? Jesus is at work building his church. Jesus is enlisting individual members into his church and forming them into local congregations. And he's using individuals and local congregations to bring out witness for who he is. And this is what you and I are a part of. Do you recognize that? Oh, it would be so well to be aware of what Jesus is doing, more so than aware of all the little details in your life and in mine. And if we understand that to be the truth, then are we giving ourselves to that? Are you going somewhere for Jesus? Are you going anywhere for Jesus? Is there anywhere that you go that is for Jesus? Or are you just going, coming and going? Do you recognize what God is doing? He's sending wherever you are going. Terrence is going to the Navy. You know why? Because Jesus is sending Terrence into the Navy. Because there's people over there that need a witness for Christ. And so... He's being sent, and so are you, into your neighborhood, into your workplace, into your extended family. Are the things you give yourself to an extension of what Jesus did? Do we have in our sights the end goal, the great end goal? Is it really even great in your mind that others would come to know? At the very beginning... I said, it might not sound like great news to realize it's not all about you, but it's really all about Jesus. Could have come back around to that point because I'm not sure we always realize or appreciate the great joy and the great happiness of being used of God to see God's grace come into the hearts and lives of other people. You thought your promotions and your bank accounts made you happy? Lead someone to Jesus and see God's grace fill a new life. And now we'll talk about real happiness and real joy. Friends, this is our greatest joy. And it's the best thing we can give ourselves to in this life. Because this, that alone, lasts forever. It will not be burned up in smoke. It will be not left behind when we leave this earth. These are the things that are permanent, eternal, and forever, and the best investment we can make. And there it is, our greatest joy. Going for Jesus, doing what Jesus did so that others might believe. Let's stand together.